Well, good morning. It is great to see you here. I know that Labor Day weekend is especially alluring that you have all sorts of options and travels and other things that might beckon your direction. And I'm so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. And I thought on this occasion, on, on a day where we celebrate taking some breaks from work, that we might reflect on our faith and Labor Day weekend. And what, is, what does our faith have to say about rest? And so I was thinking about it, and I was thinking of, okay, what, what do we ask? What do we explore as a topic? And maybe it might help you to imagine a little child who has all sorts of questions that they ask, and, and it just like need, like, why do you keep asking me all of these questions? You know, and they keep saying why, they keep saying why. And at some point they get to a question, they're like, wait, I don't know why. I probably should. If a, if a child is asking this question, I should probably understand this a little bit better, and yet I don't. And so I had, a, I had a moment of realization. I was wondering, like, why are there seven days in a week? You know, it's one of those things that we just take for granted. We have seven, seven, seven. And if you're grown up in the, in the church, you might have read Genesis 1, and you're like, well, yeah, seven days of creation. It talks about a week. And you're like, okay, I just get it. That's my answer. But why on earth seven days? It's such an unusual number because most of our numbers are, are things related to the solar system where it's like, well, we know what a year is because it takes us that long to travel around the sun. And so that's our year. Um, and the months are kind of roughly close to being like a, a month being connected to the, the moon and its cycle. It's not quite exact, but, but for the most part, months are somewhat tied towards a moon cycle. But there's no real reason it feels like at first, of like, why would there be seven days in a week? And so I was thinking about this question, and I was going down the rabbit hole, and I was thinking about how different our society is from the rest of human history, basically. We live in such unusual uh, time frame in human history because we are some of the first people who don't just spend our time looking up into the sky at night in the same way. Why? Because our cities are so bright that you can't see as much up in the sky, so we don't notice it as much. We're not looking to the stars to find our GPS coordinates. We're looking down on our bright, shiny phone that keeps us up at night. Uh, we, we don't use the, the star alignments to figure out what time of year we are. There's so much of what the ancient world looked at into the stars that we just don't do in the same way. Sure, we're still as curious. We've built giant, crazy telescopes to look at the far reaches of the universe, but our daily lives just don't follow the same <coughs> patterns. Uh, but for the ancient world, they, they did. They, what are these weird things to look at in the middle of the night? And so they developed their seasons, their calendars, their times based on what they saw. And so uh, there's a bunch of answers to what they were looking at. But let me give you the problem at first, because we're going to get to the weird confusion around how they would order systems. But the problem is, is the moon takes about 29 and a half days to make a cycle. But if I know any people who are really good at math, you might know why organizing 29 is a challenge. It's a prime number. You can't just easily divide it. There's no simple system of following the lunar calendar because, well, I got 29 days. And then you add the half part, and it gets even more confusing. <coughs> and so you had all sorts of ancient people who followed the moon because it was a quick phase. You could keep calculating. You could keep figuring it out. It was a regularity, and so they followed the moon but it wasn't easy to figure out. So, ancient Egypt, they had a system. They had a 10-day week. 
He might think, I would hate to work a 10-day week. What's the distribution of off days on a 10-day week? But they had 10 days, and that kind of makes sense. You do three sets of 10, it gets you to 30. It's very close to 29 and a half. And you have a leap day every so often where you kind of make your calendar fit a little bit better. But for the most part, three 10-day weeks. Makes pretty good sense. Um, the Romans, a little bit different. I have no idea why, but they followed an eight-day calendar system for their week. Uh, that doesn't make any sense of 29. I don't know what they were trying to do. And as they learned that other people used a seven-day system, some parts would be like, yeah, we'll do a seven-day, and some parts still kept the eight-day, and they just lived in chaos. I don't know what you do when you have half the people fall on eight-day calendars and half of them fall on seven-day. Um, and it actually wasn't until Constantine that Roman Empire chose seven days as the official week of the Roman Empire, and it switched from the eight-day. Now, Constantine, you hear his name a lot because he took an affinity to Christianity and implemented a lot of Christian practices. And it wouldn't be his son until they kind of made religion, um, the Christian religion, official Roman Empire religion. But you see they're a little bit of a mixture. And the Greeks were also a little strange. They let each city-state decide what their week was. I mean, it's hard enough when you're like, wait, what time zone are you in? Are, are you on a Monday? Are you on a Wednesday today? What, what day of the week? How many days do you have? Uh, in a world where you don't just call and talk to people, you don't notice, though, because you live your daily life in your own system, and you don't experience the others as much. The seven-day week, though, seems to have originated in Babylon, in that region, in the Mesopotamia, kind of that Mediterranean. you got the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And there's a few reasons for their seven-day decision. One, it gets pretty close to that 29-and-a-half number, you do a leap day or two every so often. You got your four sets of seven. It's pretty good. But why seven? They could see seven celestial bodies moving in the skies. And so they honored God slash these planetary bodies or star or moon and say, okay, we'll name a day after each of these wandering things in the sky. If you don't know the origin of the word planets, Think about plantar fasciitis and that kind of stuff. Planets is the wandering, the walking things in the sky that keep moving around. And so they saw, let's have a day for the sun, let's have a day for the moon, and for Mercury, and for Venus, and Mars, and Jupiter, and Saturn, and we can't see any further, so that's just out into the nothingness. But with the naked eye, we have seven planetary kinds of bodies, or star, moon, so seven days of the week. And we still see that in our own kind of terminology. What day of the week is it today? It's the sun day. You got to have a good accent for tomorrow to understand the moon day. And because we have Germanic backgrounds in English, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are kind of much more Norse gods instead of the, our Latin counterparts. But they had different names for planets that were also like uh, their gods. Uh, so uh, if you want Thursday, is Thor's day. If you like Marvel Cinematic Universe, you should celebrate watching a Thor movie on a Thursday. Uh, but you get to Saturday, it makes a little bit more sense again in English, Saturn day. Um, but our days of the week became named after these planetary bodies, what they would observe in the sky and the patterns that they followed. And so that seven-day week, it was not established as, of course, that's what week should be because it's a little bit strange and it doesn't quite fit that lunar calendar and 365 isn't easy to fit things in either uh, for a solar year. But 
Babylon had a major influence on our biblical tradition, on the people of Israel. And so if you want to know, when did Israel first encounter the seven-day notion? When did they start thinking theologically about seven-day weeks? You have some options. If you want to go really far back in the Bible, Israel sees its founding father as Father Abraham and many sons. Father Abraham, his family leaves the city of Ur. And they go and they travel across that that region up towards Haran, and then God calls Abraham from Haran down to Israel. So they were already living in that Babylonian kind of region, and maybe they picked up on that seven-day week really early. Or maybe they picked it up later. Perhaps you know, they went into Exodus, and they, you know, they had captivity in Egypt, and they had to live in a 10-day work week down in Egypt. And maybe when they came back to Canaan, they encountered a land that was shaped by the Babylonian powers, because Israel's just in this path in between major superpowers. Or maybe it's when they get taken into captivity that when Israel loses, when Judah's temple falls, and they get ripped from their homes and taken into the Babylonian empire as slaves. Maybe they have to start working their slave labor according to Babylon's work week. But at some point in Israel's history, the connection between the, the week they experienced in Babylon became an opportunity for them to talk theologically about who God is in the midst of this week. And it gives us a powerful opportunity. Uh, I want to run through just, if you haven't ever seen how Babylon influenced the way that Israel talked about their faith, I, I always love to have the opportunity to talk about it when we get this moment chance. But basically, if you read Genesis 1 through 11, you are filled with these theological, beautiful, powerful stories told in contrast to the Babylonian stories. So you have stories of God hovering on the waters and speaking out creation, not like Tiamat and Marduk and the Enuma Elish stories in which the gods are fighting over these water creatures. You have stories about paradise, where Adam and Eve are people who live in a garden, who love their land, their land's beautiful, it's filled with great fruit, but they're disobedient and they get kicked out, which feels a lot like when they lose Israel. And they had all, their own land and their own gardens and they get ripped from them and have to live hard work in exile. Babylonians are famous for having the flood stories. It's not a Noah name, it's a Utnapishtim. Doesn't roll off your tongue quite as easily as Noah. But he's a figure who the gods tell, hey, there's a flood coming because the gods think humans are annoying and obnoxious and loud. And so they, this one god goes and tells this Utnapishtim character, go build an ark, save yourself. And after the floods recede, he makes an offering and the gods smell it and realize, oh, we loved their great barbecue altar sacrifices. I'm glad they survived. And so Utnapishtim gets to make, he gets everlasting life. They, they let him live forever. And the Gilgamesh, if you ever heard of the epic of Gilgamesh, one of the oldest stories, Gilgamesh is looking for e eternal life because he lost a friend. And he goes, finds this Noah figure and says, how do I live forever? And he says, I've got a plant for you. There's a certain tree, maybe you might say. There's a plant. It'll give you everlasting life. And he goes and he finds the plant and then a snake takes it from him. That's... Snakes always get you in these stories. And then most pronounced, after this flood story in Genesis 11, you get to the story of building of a tower, the Tower of Babel, which the text just says the Tower of Babylon, and our translators love saying Babel instead. Uh, but you build this giant 
structure in the middle of, of the empire. And instead of celebrating this building project of all the peoples of the world being slaves to build this giant tower, God confuses them, say, hey, go speak your own languages, go fill the earth. You don't have to live here. And so the Genesis story especially, but the Israelite story became, how do we understand our faith when we live in exile among a people who their story about who we are is we are just slaves? Because that was the dominant religion message to you. Can you imagine if that was the spiritual message of your era, of just that the dominant religion that was over you said, hey, you're nothing but slaves, go do your work for us. And so Marduk and Babylon's capital was celebrated as a victorious warrior king who you need to celebrate by doing all this hard work for. And so in defiance of this narrative, Israel tells a story of God making the world in seven days, not through war and conflict, but through speech. Isn't that more powerful? I didn't have to use my strong arms, my swords, my spears. I just say it, and it's going to happen. And wouldn't it be great if speech and truth was victorious? Not the people just had the better tanks or the better bombs or whatever it is. It's just, just the speech of God is victorious. And so... In the midst of exile, I just want you to imagine before we read this Deuteronomy text, when you're taken from your homeland, you lost your sacrifice practice. You can't go to a temple and just offer your normal sacrifice. Like, how do I know God is with me? And so the easy marker every single week is you did Sabbath. Everybody could figure out, how do I practice Sabbath? No matter what land I'm in, I can spend some time in prayer. I can spend some time in reflection. And so I want you to hear today from Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to read about the commandment of Sabbath. In verse 12 and through 15, it says, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien of your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There's a lot of richness to the story when you reflect on what it is to rest in the midst of an empire that wants you to live in slavery. One thing I want to note before we get too far into this, some translations I think are helpful by, um, sometimes it'll talk about people and it'll make it, uh, men and women, instead of just saying, like, in, in the New Testament, Paul writes brothers. Sometimes they say brothers and sisters, because it could be a collective group he's talking to. Uh, so that sometimes happens in translations, and that's I think, is a positive, helpful thing. But in this text, when it keeps talking about sons and daughters and male and female slaves, and all, it's literally in the text telling you, I want you to say, everybody gets to rest. Guys, you don't get to just take this one easy and say, well, 
we will be the ones to fulfill the Sabbath and let all the women do all the work on the Sabbath. You know, the sons and the daughters, the male slaves and the female slaves. And in case you thought, well, I'm going to build a, a, maybe a robot in today's society, or I'm going to make my animals do all the work, your beasts of burden, your ox, your donkeys, they get a rest too. No trying to sidestep it. I really mean it. Everybody deserves to rest. And I love that this Deuteronomy story, a version of this commandment, focuses so much on that people need rest. That you can't just be worked into the ground. That's not a way to live. You won't survive long that way. And we live in a society that loves to work 24-7. Every time we create a new thing that might think you might think it makes makes easy work or something like what if we had self-driving cars then then you know what we're going to figure out how to make my morning commute a time where i get to work on the way to work you know we'll find new ways to work even more and i was thinking about the first time that i realized this is so like baked into us was when i traveled to serbia for one christmas break um it's been a while back now in early college years and i went there and it was new year's and uh, what was interesting was we would go and every single place was shut down. And you see it for the most part around town that we'll shut things down for New Year's. But literally, we kept trying to go place to place. We needed some food or whatever it was, and just everybody was shut down. And the initial thought was, man, if you opened a restaurant right now, you'd make a killing. You'd get so much business. But life's not about just business even though our brains feel like that that's been pushed on us or we think that way. And so one of the things I enjoy from them, uh, the next night they decided to party again and they just said, oh, it's New Year's Eve, rewind. We, we just act like it's the last day again and we'll, we'll celebrate again. So they didn't just want to do it the celebrations one time, let's keep doing that. But for so many of us, we've been told, we've been enslaved to a concept of just, you've got to keep working, keep working, keep working. That if you don't work hard enough, that you're a failure as a person. If you didn't provide well enough, you're a failure as a person. If you didn't make, you know, if you didn't help your kids well enough, you're a failure of a person. If you didn't clean your house well enough, you're a failure of a person. Whatever work we might have in life, we feel like our identity is so tied to it that if I fall short on it, who am I? But God has a reminder to us that everybody needs rest. And it's not just a privilege of the powerful and the elite or the wealthy, but every single person, even the animals. I don't know what Sabbath might look like for any of you that have pets, dogs and cats. What's Sabbath look like for a cat? But I love that the story goes to everybody. And this story is told like we're in the vantage point where they're the people in control and power. But Deuteronomy is written from a later period. It is written more with that exile period in mind. So I love that it's saying when you have power, so even if we get out of this situation of slavery, the way you rule is even the foreigner in your midst, even the lowly, everybody deserves this. You know what it's like to work full, full days, never get a break. Everybody deserves to rest. So honor it, for the Lord's commanded it. And I think that we need that reminder that there are people in our lives who work nonstop, and they deserve rest too. Now I have to tell you, uh, one of the weird things in Scripture is it's, it's put together with 
it's got a lot of edited editions. That's why Deuteronomy retells a lot of the same stories. But Exodus 20 also has the story of Ten Commandments, and the list is a little bit, a little different nuance. So I want to read for you the Sabbath commandment in Exodus to give a little different version here. Um, so Exodus 28 says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. This might sound a little familiar here. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. But the explanation is not because you were slaves in Egypt. Here's what it says. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. So the explanation in Exodus for the Sabbath is not about your hard work as slaves, but it says, hey, God created the world in this way. So you should be able to rest too. Some of us think rest is a sign of weakness. That, oh, if I got to take a break, oh, you, somebody, like, I got to take my nap. Like, oh, like, am I, am I strong enough? I just got to, I got to rest. If the model example is that God rests, nobody should feel too good, too big, too powerful to rest. The one that we most want to model our lives after showed the practice of taking some rest and break. And it wasn't because of being, you know, there wasn't that kind of slavery background of this version of it. But instead, if you remember Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, God makes things and then he like observes them. He sees, oh, you know what? This is good. Make some more things, also good. And he gets to the end of it, he's like, this is very good. And then he rests in that. And something about a Sabbath rest is beautiful about being able to just gaze out at the work of your week, at the labor of your week, and not criticizing yourself, not cutting yourself down and be like, I was so lousy. But to be able to look out and see what was good in that week. Where was God at in this week? Where, where did I live faithfully? Where is what I did brings life to somebody? Does it bring happiness to somebody? Where, where have I done good? And celebrating it and saying that was good. And it's kind of like, I, I just kind of like the image, you, maybe you've done this yourself or you've seen um, whoever mows the lawn in your, your family unit or whatever, that sometimes you, you might see a dad kind of mowing the lawn and then they get in and they just stare at that lawn. Hmm, it looks so good. And there's something about that kind of notion of just staring out at that week and saying, oh, this was good. I just need to savor it a moment because I know that that grass is about to grow again. The weeds are going to start back up. But for one day, can we just take one moment and look out and say, right now, I see the beauty in it. And just rest in that. Because it's not just enough to take a break and just hit pause, but you've got to reflect. You've got you to spend some time appreciating where the beauty is in life, appreciating where the goodness is. Because if you just kind of sleep through the day, you might need it. But if you never really think about it, it won't recharge you in the same way as saying, you know what was amazing about this week? That was beautiful about this week. Now when I go into work the next week, I want to live that again. I want to find out how do I make that good thing happen again this new week. So we should reflect, we should see, we should look out. And for, for all of us, 
How do we live that out? Where we, we make sure everyone gets the break. We make sure that we reflect, that we, that we look out, and that most importantly, we get to enjoy it. So not just sitting from afar looking at that nice yard, but go out and enjoy it, right? Go out and enjoy the fruit of our work. There's so many commandments in the Bible about, you know, the workers shouldn't have to work and toil and toil and toil and then never see anything for it. Like if you were working at the vineyard all week and then you never got to see any of those grapes. That's so exhausting and demoralizing and just feels wrong. And so I love the beauty of putting the Genesis 1 creation account right next to Genesis 2, that you kind of have God resting, God seeing all that he's done, and then the next day we, we kind of see God walking in the garden with Adam. What is it to enjoy, to experience, to live out that rest? And so for each of us, I hope that we might truly find what rest looks like for ourselves. That we take a moment to pause, not because we're weak, but because it will make us stronger, it will make life more sweet, more beautiful. And we might reflect, we might look, and we might observe where goodness is at in our lives, that it might encourage us to the next week, and that we might just get to enjoy that fruit. Because I think for so many of us, the counter story is so powerful and so present and I, was th- I was thinking about all this, and I couldn't help but think about like the Amazon worker, you know, the delivery guy or lady, just running from house to house. Because so many of us are like, we don't spend as much time in retail stores, the stores have to come to us. And so those people are hustling all day. Some of them doing better work than others, perhaps. Some with more care for each of those boxes than others. But I didn't even know this was a thing until I saw an Amazon commercial where they did a commercial saying, you know, it's not actually true, those rumors that our workers don't have bathroom breaks, you know. I said, man, working conditions must be awful if you're running an ad that already, like, self-condemns yourself this much. <laughs> like, I didn't even know about this. And then you read the Washington Post stories, you read news articles about some of the challenging work conditions. And there can be a difference between the rules you create and what's the lived reality of people on the ground. And my heart breaks that people live their lives having to hustle, 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 where they don't feel like they can even take a moment of basic human decency for themselves. And at the end of the day, they might think, I delivered all this stuff, and I don't even have enough money for whatever that next thing is that they need. But what what could the world look like if we cared about the rest of the rest of us? If we just cared about our neighbor, the family member, the coworker, the pets, the animals. I don't know if we've got to go give the AI Google bots a little break every so often or what that looks like in today's world. But I think we all deserve to rest. So my encouragement to you is that you might find a renewed commitment to making a moment of rest for you. Traditionally, that's been on the seventh day of the week, which is a Saturday. Um, but we know that those conceptions are all a little bit ob- obscure. But find that time, that day, where you get to rest. And hold to it. Don't give it up easily. Uh, it could wait, but I should do this. Just, just find that opportunity. Rest. Contemplate what God has done, what beautiful things are happening in your life and live into the fruit of your work for that week.
and make that possible for others. And so that's the beauty of the opportunity that God invites us into. And so in a moment when we pray, we can just sit back and rest with God in that prayer time. And in a moment when we take communion in a little while, if you just rest into that communion, that, that God miraculously brings that daily bread, that, that manna in the wilderness, that you didn't know that your work was going to get any sort of fruit, but, but God might still make that true in your life. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we ask that you might calm our spirits, that our restlessness that prevents us from, from pausing might be, might be shaped into something new, that you might give us a spirit to rest in you instead of relying on ourselves, that we might find some moments that we just thank you and we spend time in gratitude. Lord, when we have moments of, of joy, moments of great opportunities, great things in our life, that we might take a moment and rest with you and be grateful. Lord, when we are overworked and overburdened, Lord, I ask that you might give us strength and that we might rest in the fact that you command the world not to be that way. And that there will be an, a time, there will be a place in which your rest is truly felt. Where all the work of this world might be transformed. Where we might rest in your presence, we might spend time in peace instead of war. And feasting instead of famine and hope instead of despair. So Lord, I ask that whatever turmoil, whatever stresses, whatever anxieties, whatever weaknesses that we are feeling today, that you might give us that moment of feeling that, that we are more than that thing, that you are greater than that problem or challenge, and that we can rest in you. Lord, lead us into the life that you have for us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.